This is a conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're sharing a Summer Reads Hanaho show. One of the titles on our bookshelf spotlights Hawaii's statuary history. Reflections in Stone and Bronze is the title of a field guide to statues across the state. Author Cheryl Soon saw the void in our Hawaii Nade and set out to understand the markers placed in our community. The book tries to give context to the works of art in a time when statues are being removed in places across the country. I was quite interested in what was happening nationwide in the Confederate statues, the controversies and how the community was responding. As a city planner, I thought that this is part of placemaking, it's part of history. And then the logical thing was, how did our community locate the statues that it did and, and why are they there? But as I got into kind of more of the sociology of it, I realized that the statues actually reveal a lot about the community and its history and its culture, and that that changes over time, and that while a person putting up a statue, you know, thinks that they're telling a story, the others over time start reinterpreting, in some cases, that story, and it's all relevant. And so it seemed as if this was a way of capturing to research some of the original intentions and the stories that people were trying to tell. You can tell more in a book than you can in just a statue. The statue sometimes only has its base and all it has is the name. In other cases, it has a little bit more. But that's really why I decided that this was interesting to me. It would probably be interesting to a lot of other people, but my audience was people from Hawaii who go by these every day and, and maybe might say, oh, not what that's all about. I guess let's talk about some of the first uh, statues or structures, okay. markers, I guess you might call them, mm-hmm. uh, that you start the book with. And you start in Waikiki, and, and these are the, the, the healing stones, you know, of, of yes. locations where our EV are located. The 1990s was an intense period of time when a lot of reflection was taking place in the public and private sectors as to who we are and who were we representing ourselves when it came to visitors and you know what were the historical markers and, and were they being respectfully treated. So there was an attempt to take the healing stones in Waikiki and, and give them a better placement and, and better protection so that people didn't pull their wet towels on it or something. And then same thing with the Eevee and the making of a mound just outside of the zoo because the sidewalk was going to be widened and the road was going to be, Kalakaua Avenue was going to be narrowed. And they knew in the course of that that they would find burial. Every time they'd worked in Waikiki, they found burial. So they worked with the lineal descendant families as to what would be the most respectful way of treating those. So, again, it, it's a, it's starting to feel better about our history by properly and respectfully treating the features that are located in these places. But if you want to start with statues, you have to start with Kamehameha. And, of course, that's important. Right now, we have Kamehameha Day coming up. There is an annual event where the draping of the statues is done, and the lays can be 20 feet long. They are walked in by the Hawaiian societies. They are draped over the statue by the fire department, and it's a very impressive and important statue ceremony. That takes place in Honolulu. It takes place in Hilo. It takes place in Kohala, and it takes place in the U.S. Capitol, the four places where the Kamehameha statue is located. The Kamehameha statue is the first Western statue that Hawaii ever had. It was erected in 1884. It had been commissioned a few years earlier by King Kalakaua for the 100th anniversary of the arrival of Cook, but it was not um, actually erected for a few years because the statue was shipped over and it was lost at sea. So it had to be remade and Actually, the first statue that had been lost at sea was found and returned to Hawaii. 
So at that point in time, we now had two statues. And a decision was made that the first one, the one that had been lost at sea, would go to Kohala, which is the birthplace of Kamehameha. The second one would be erected in Honolulu. That happened to coincide with the coronation of King Kalakaua. But it actually, the first intention for it was to be erected several years earlier in recognition of the arrival of Cook. The statue itself was modeled after the Augustus Caesar statue in Prima Porta, Italy. So it was a very significant statue in its time. Coincidentally, it's very close to the years in which the Statue of Liberty was being erected in the United States. But for Hawaii, up to that point, Hawaiians had never erected statues. So this was the very first one. And in fact, it was the only one for several years before another one was erected, in part because of the logistical challenges, I think, at the time. But the next one was the McKinley statue in 1911, and then the Abraham Lincoln statue in 1944. So over a 50-year period, we really only had three statues being erected. That's interesting. And so you have a section on royal statues. Uh, you have one yeah. on religious and spiritual, you know, statues, you know, which includes, you know, Father Damien, which is there at the, at the state capitol. At the capitol, a very significant statue, yeah. You know, you also have uh, statues honoring national and international figures, including yeah. uh, Syngman Rhee, the president of uh, Korea, who I just mm-hmm. found out um, lived on my street. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Well, I don't know what street you're on, but yeah. that, that is interesting. And I think that's the kind of thing that people will be able to start enjoying, that they can relate to it. Oh, this statue at the church I go to or the school I go to, they can start identifying with these statues in a very different way. Perhaps it's because they share an ethnicity or because they share a characteristic of believing in liberty or something like that. But it's kind of fun to find your own personal associations with these. I think this can be a fun teaching tool for schools, for classrooms. I think it can be a fun teaching tool for families to go out and, you know, explore one or two of them on a Sunday afternoon. Maybe we'd have a picnic there. But I think it's an activity that can really broaden a person's perspective about the place where they live. I can see, you know, field trips for school kids. Oh, absolutely. You have, of course, the Duke Kahanamoku statue in Waikiki. And, you know, that's yeah. a big deal because you know, of what he did for that sport and uh, and the fact that we have a gold medal at the at the Olympics. I'll tell you a funny story about the Duke Kahanamoku statue. It was actually a, a competition to decide who would get to do it. It was awarded to Jan Fisher, who was a BYU professor who did many other important statues like Princess Kailani and Robert Wilcock. But when it arrived, his widow went up to the statue and said, the swimming trunks are wrong. They are too long. She drew a line and she said, this is how short he wore his shorts. And so the artist adjusted the sculpture to be what she thought was the correct length. (laughs) It is also the statue in Hawaii that has the most number of selfies taken. Uh, I can believe that. Yeah. You have then this, this, this lovely book that you hope will help people to learn and appreciate more of our history here. Uh, I don't know. Anything that you were struck by as you were doing your research and putting this all together? I think that the breadth of subject matters impressed me and that how relatable they would be to everyone in Hawaii. Maybe not every single one of them, but certainly many of them they could relate to. I don't think very many people know that we have a statue of Abraham Lincoln, and it's not at Lincoln School. It's at Ever Elementary School. But the statue of Lincoln, which again is one of our older statues, it was built in 1944. And it was a legacy of the principal at the time, who was a single woman, and she left her entire estate, $8,000, to erect a statue because she was a big fan of Lincoln. Well, even then, it wasn't enough time to create the statue. And many people turned down the commission, but Avard Fairbanks, who has done a large number of Lincoln, said he would consider it an honor. 
he decided that the typical statue of Lincoln would not fit in Hawaii, you know, the stovepipe hat and and the long tailcoat sort of a, a statue. And so that statue is the pose of Lincoln in the as the frontiersman. And the children there at Ever Elementary love that statue. Every year they have an assembly on his birthday, February 12th, and they write poems and essays and drawings about Lincoln and what an important figure he was, which would have been exactly what that principal, Catherine Burke, would have wanted. Oh, that's a neat story, a really neat story. Yeah. And one of the newer statues is that of uh, Patsy Mink. We are marking the anniversary of Title IX, and so that Correct. that statue there in front of the library is certainly significant. And, and I was fortunate enough to interview the sculptor, and you have a section in your book where you talk to the artists who created these yes. statues. Yes, that artist was, was Holly Young. She lives on the Big Island, and... Um, he also did the statue of Kapiolani down in Kapiolani Park. And in my chapter about the artists, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview all the living artists. I was able to have a chapter where we talk about the artists and their work. I hope as many people as possible will become aware of the book. We are doing a tour of some of the statues with the Historic Hawaii Foundation and and other people who are seeing the possibilities of understanding these things are starting to see how they can use the book and its information and in, in, in what interests them. That was Cheryl Soon talking about her book, Reflections in Stone and Bronze, published by Mutual. The interview aired in June of last year. Surfing Sisterhood Hawaii, Wahine, Reclaiming the Waves, was published earlier this year. It's written by Mindy Pennebacher, who covers the surf scene for the Star Advertiser. The book explores the history, challenges, and evolution of surfing from the perspective of women on waves. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked to Pennebacher about the sport that they both love. How did you come to surf? I just started out, I had to surf. I wanted to surf all my life, but I grew up in a very protective Korean-American family. And my grandfather made me swim a mile out at sea, and he had his stopwatch before I could qualify to get my first surfboard. And I was like 13, and then I had, for, before that I went body surfing at Makapu with some of my great classmates, some of the girls, you know, at Punahou, who were all like on the water polo and swim teams, but they took me under their wings. So I was very water-wise, but I wanted a board. Did anyone in your family surf then? No one, like no one in my whole family surfed except maybe for a couple of cousins in Wahiwa, but that was too far. I lived in Honolulu. So I just got adopted by this pack of boys in my neighborhood, my, my age, who I'd seen all my life I just felt so repressed because I always had to dress conservatively, wear conservative swimsuits. But one of them was our newspaper boy. He took me under his wing. My grandfather trusted him. And so, you know, when you would see a whole bunch of boys going down to tongs or suicides, there I'd be, the one girl. Uh, one of the statistics in my book is there are 30 million surfers worldwide, according to the International Olympic Committee. Four to one is the ratio of men to women. I went out this morning, paddled out. The ratio was 9 to 1. I was the only female out at Suey's. It was a great day, great waves. One of the things I learned when researching and writing this book that really surprised me was that in old Hawaii, women surfed as equals with men. Queens surfed, commoners surfed. It's all in the materials observed by like the first Westerners and then later on by writers like Samuel Kamakau in the 19th century. Women beat men in fun surf competitions throughout the 19th century. And it really wasn't until 19, the 1950s when the movie Gidget came out, ironically, you know, about mm -hmm. a girl who breaks the, the watery ceiling, that surfing became immensely popular and commodified. And there was suddenly uh, money to be made in advertising. 
and men literally shouldered women aside. The white male Western colonial bias against women and certainly people of color played a huge part. We have to remember that Princess Kaiolani was a radical canoe surfer out at Waikiki. And she has a surfboard that's in the Bishop Museum, although we have no documentation of her actually surfing, but I'm sure she did. And she had to wear those crummy bathing dresses, too. Right, right. I think. And so how did surfing shape your personal philosophy about life? How did you find your life unfold because surfing was so important to you? Surfing was, for me and for the more than 30 women I've interviewed for the book, a release from our obligations on land, and it is freedom. That's what it is to me. You just can look like a mess. Everyone does. You know. <laughs> you just are in nature. I write in the book that I might have been a better student. You know, I might have had a better job if I hadn't always returned to surfing all my life, obsessed with surfing. But I think it's given me great mental and enduring physical health. Like just this morning, I hadn't been going out for days because I had been working on book promotion and outreach. And then this morning, it looked so perfect. And I just went and felt completely transformed, energized, happy. It's a meditation process, right? Totally. What is something that you wish people would know about women and surfing that they do not know? We should be thinking guys who outnumber women by four to one on average. They just shouldn't judge by appearances because literally you can see a girl, a very young girl or an older woman who might be on equipment that's not as cool or expensive as the guy's tiny shortboards, but you can't assume that they don't know how to surf. I think people also ought to understand that surfing is a microcosm for the greater society known for gender bias. I mean, I've often been gaslighted by aggressive newbies at my home break. They'll go like, you know, you shouldn't be out here. You don't know how to surf. I mean, they'll just say that to me. Oh. You know, and they'll snake me. They'll steal away. Oh. They'll actually menace me, paddling towards me, oh my just gosh. to move me out of the way, you know, because I'm an older woman. And what happens is we internalize this criticism. Right. Just as with anything else in social life, you know, when people say that we can't do this or that, you know, we can't get a certain job, we can't measure up, we can't get so much pay. Right. So I think for all girls and women, we need to realize that we have to believe in ourselves. The water where you're seeking freedom from that is also becomes a vulnerable place too. It's extremely vulnerable and I mean very competent women surfers in this book, for instance Debbie Milliken, a recreational surfer who's been a pro, says when she paddles out if they're strange guys, she can tell by the look in their eyes they assume she can't surf. Carissa Moore, the five-time world champion and our Olympic gold champion, has told me, you know, yeah, if she paddles out for a recreational surf even, she just feels intimidated if it's a lot of guys and just her or a few girls because they're bigger and stronger. They can paddle faster. You know, we do feel, you can't help but feel physically intimidated. We're all animals, right? We right. measure the size and we look in the eyes and we go, uh-oh. So even today on my blissful morning surf, there were some, you know, some spotty times when I felt I had to com compete with a guy for a wave. Once I showed them that I could do it, that was fine. They cheered me on. But there's always that, you know, I'm the only woman. Right. You're still in a pioneering space. <laughs> exactly. Over and over and over. You know, if you think about the history of surfing, through your book, I came to see, wow, there are a lot more women, and there's no record of them. Well, thanks, Stephanie. I really felt we needed to talk about surfing as a recreational, fun activity that takes women out of our daily drudgery. And I started off talking with just the girls and women I surf with at Suey's, you know, the regulars, and I realized we hardly ever really talk, you know, you're just in this, <laughs> you're, you're in kinda, the water, you're looking for waves, and we're very serious. 
So this opened up a whole world. From all of them, I learned that they don't care as much about catching 20 waves. They don't have like some minimum docket of waves. They just want to get out in the water, whether it's Elizabeth Maiden and Kailua, the founder of Surfing Moms, you know, where they babysit each other's kids on the beach. Yeah, that's awesome. Exactly. Or whether it's like Kiana Blankenfeld, who teaches surfing and also she's like a UFC fighter. Yeah, there's women all over the island surfing. And what do you think is the nature of this sisterhood? The sisterhood is, I guess, essentially a sisterhood initially of mutual suffering and embarrassment. (laughs) Because (laughs) it's just hard when you're learning and you're wearing maybe a different swimsuit. You know, like no one wants to wear those guy board shorts and then we need something on top, which always gets tangled up or falls off. And then there's just that stress with the men prejudging us. And I'm also interested in the fact that you are a surf columnist. You must be one of the only women surf columnists. There are not a lot of women writing about it, and not frequently, and not in a place where surf is a big thing. Yeah, well, writing about surfing has really opened up communications with other surfers in an incredible way, because I used to just surf as my refuge from land, so I never would talk to anybody. I'd just sit there grumpily. <laughs> and, but since I had the column, people were reading it. Surfers were reading it. And they're coming up and giving me stories and talking to me or saying, I didn't agree with that, you know, or that was good. And so it's really made me more of a social creature. It's true that I'm probably the least sporty person ever. My, <laughs> my only sport is surfing. I started off as a features columnist doing ocean lifestyles at the Honolulu Star Advertiser. And I believe that the history of competitive surfing and in the book is the only his- comprehensive history of competitive surfing that's been written by a woman. One thing I've really discovered and I want everyone to know is what a great supportive network surfing is. The pro women surfers, you know, Rochelle Ballard, Kayla Kennelly, Betty DiPolito, and, you know, the younger girls who've talked to me, I mean, they're just, they're so stoked that someone's telling, a woman's telling the story. The book was supposed to go to print, like, in December, and I said, no, they, they might hold the first Eddie with women. And yeah, at the Bay, women have only competed virtually. But then they they just got their feet under them and totally charged, as everyone saw. We have to be philosophical. Ultimately, surfing is fun. And then my motto in the book is, surfing well is the best revenge. That was HPR Stephanie Hahn talking with Mindy Pennebacher, author of Surfing Sisterhood Hawaii, Wahine, Reclaiming the Waves, back in May of this year. Her book includes tips and ideas for women interested in this beloved local sport. It's available through Mutual Publishing. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Things you can buy for a dollar, a gumball, a pencil, an entire Hawaiian island. When I saw that he had purchased Lanai for only one dollar, I was like, how is that allowed to happen? On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, how Lanai first fell under private ownership a hundred years ago. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Member-supported HPR One. Streaming and more at hawaiipublicradio.org.
What does it mean to be local? That's a question that Oahu native and NBC News editor Jessica Machado examines in her new memoir entitled Local. Machado's father was Hawaiian Portuguese. Her mother was from the American South. And while growing up, she wrestled with her multi-ethnic identity and often questioned whether she was local. That conflict caused her reckless spiral as a young adult, something she was able to come out of after embracing her native Hawaiian identity. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Machado in our studios to discuss identity and what it means to be local today. When we were growing up, what did it mean to be local? Yeah, I feel like the easy catch-all answer was you were born and raised in Hawaii, right? If you didn't quite know how to explain it, that's what we did. But there was also like... And, and some of this was like a stereotype that, that I sort of fell into is that like you you need to have like a certain color skin. You should be like a submixture of like 10 different ethnicities. You probably speak a little bit of pigeon or, you know, at least, you know, there's inflection there. You like to be at the beach a lot. Like there's, you know, there's like these stereotypes of like what it means. People, you're chill, right? Like I yeah, feel like that's the right. number one one <laughs> is like you're not a high, strong, anxiety ridden person fighting those kinds of tendencies like I was <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> but, you know, obviously there's many types of being local. If I thought about it further, I would I thought about it how like if our ancestors usually went back to like plantation days, right. like there's a certain set of ethnicities that sort of fall into local category. And that comes from that time of like being in the plantations. But obviously that's not true, right? Because mm-hmm. there's other Polynesians, there's like Tahitians and Samoans and Tongans, and they were not part of that. And they're here for many generations. They're local. Like there's Howleys, you know, that have been here, you know, longer than, you know, older than I am that, you know, they're local Howleys, right? Like yeah. there's so many different nuances to it. But growing up, it was just like, I felt like you had to maybe act or look a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree that growing up that, that tend to be the marker, but I think things are different now. And I don't know if it's because society is different or I don't know if it's just because we're at a point in our life where we can kind of look back and be more objective. But I like what you wrote in your book. You say that today there is no cut and dry rubric for what makes someone local, though it is loosely defined as someone born and raised in Hawaii or someone who has lived in Hawaii long enough to truly honestly live Aloha Aina. Ultimately, being local is less about skin color and more about caring for the people in the Aina. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how you arrived at that thought? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I moved away quite a few years ago and I come back and, you know, I see that there's, you know, my parents now live, or my stepmom now lives in Waimanalo. And so we're like on that mm-hmm. side of the island and I come in contact with people who haven't always lived here and it's segregated, right? Like mm-hmm. there's like some level of, you don't really want to understand maybe the history of Hawaii or or maybe you you don't even need to. I mean, I grew up not even fully understanding the history of Hawaii, but you don't want to integrate into the culture or you don't want to, you know, the idea of like, you know, they live on Agland, like you don't want to, you're not growing food Mm -hmm. for your community, right? Like you're complaining about this or like, you know, you go to Lanikai and it's like, which is not its real name. I found out when writing this book, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's like you, you get $200 tickets if you park there. Right. Like these are people who kind of want to, you know, it's, you want to have this exclusivity, right. Instead of like caring about integrating and caring about the land and wanting to be part of and wanting to understand why, why do we eat Mac salad with all of our meals? Like, you know, like why are, you know, and so, to me, like that felt like the distinction, right? And I, I felt like as I started to understand that, you know, like I'm local, right? Like mm-hmm. because I do care, and that's what makes me feel local is that I care about these things, right? And I and I have these connections, and I haven't lived here in a long time, and I come back, and my friends and I are like still super close, you know. We still can pick up where we left off. We can still talk about like what restaurants or, you know, places are no longer there, but we could also talk about like, you know, goofy things we did in high school or something. You know, it's just like this very warm vibe, you know, like I, Aloha is used to, is overused sometimes, but I feel real Aloha is like coming in open and like really wanting to get it and understand the culture here. And people can sense it too, right? Locals yeah. can sense other locals. I remember I got off the plane in Kona once and I was in the line walking out towards the baggage claim and the security guard at that door of no return was greeting everybody. You know, they were saying, Aloha, welcome, welcome. And as I passed the door, I goes, how's it, brother? Welcome, <laughs> welcome. So that I love Oh, my that. God. That makes yeah. you, yes, that makes you feel yeah. like, yes, they know yeah. I belong here. Right, yeah. right, <laughs> right. So I, yeah, I, I love that. 
your book is is a memoir and it traces your life from a very young age into adulthood. And the reason I think your story is so compelling is certainly because I relate to a lot of the the events that happened in your life. A lot of the ways that you were raised kind of mirrored the way that I was raised. But you also went on this journey to come to the place where you are today. And I don't want you to give your whole book away, but can you kind of talk about that journey or talk about how that journey started? Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up feeling a little lonely, right? I was an only child for a large portion of my childhood. And and I lived in Hawaii. This is a beautiful place. And I was indoors a lot. My parents worked as parents do. And I just didn't sort of you know, I was part of the culture, but I wasn't at the same time, right? Sometimes, like, I felt very isolated. And so those feelings of isolation start manifesting in different ways, right? Like, you know, especially when you're a teenager, you rebel. And I was like, you know, I was like a punk rock goth chick in high school and college. But at that same time, I was not alone. Like, there was a lot of people in those scenes that didn't feel like they had to be, you know, happy locals to quote unquote, right? Like, there was... It was the 90s. <laughs> right. And so, you know, my mom was also ill and that was hard. And I was also, you know, a little ambitious. Right. Yeah. So once I graduated from UH, I decided I would apply for some internships on the mainland because maybe the mainland is where I fit in better. And yes and no. Right. You know, yeah. I don't, again, I don't want to ruin the book. But, you know, that feeling of isolation had nothing to do with, you know, this place is better than this place. It was my own disconnection that I had to mend. And even like moving further and further away, now I live in New York, I think it, it really took being that far away to sort of understand what I had been missing. Right. Yeah. Right. It's such a strange thing, I think, sometimes. A lot of us that grow up here, maybe because it's just all we know, sometimes it takes us having to step outside of Hawaii to really appreciate our culture and our and our way of life. I know that was the experience that I had. I moved to Denver and I lived there for 15 years. I can say for sure that I didn't appreciate Hawaiian music. Mm-hmm. I didn't appreciate Hawaiian food. Totally. I didn't appreciate the Hawaiian way of life until it wasn't around me all the time every day. And then all I wanted for much of those 15 years was just to come back home. Yeah. At what point did you, in your time away from Hawaii, at what point did you start to get that urge to return and and to really grab onto your identity as a Hawaiian? Yeah, it's interesting because I always missed home, but I wanted to pretend like I was tough. Like when I moved to LA, I was just like, well, I got to stick it out. I don't want to be those people that come home, right? right? I mean, like in any small town kind of way, right? But yeah, I don't think I fully realized and wanted and and yearned for it in a way and also like wanted to own my native Hawaiian identity too until my dad started to get ill. So he got ill about 10 years ago, I want to say. And and it started to make me think like when my dad's gone, my mom's gone, right? My when my dad's gone, what is my connection to home? And like what is our connection to our native Hawaiian ancestry? And it started to make me yearn for that and want to study it, like our history. And and also in my own job, in my work, you know, I've been the identities editor at several publications. And so I've for a long time covered race and socioeconomics and gender. But I decently versed in a lot of American history, like continental history. And I realized, wait a minute, <laughs> I think I should learn some of my own, right? Obviously, I was drawn to those things for a reason, because I did sort of always feel like, what am I? Am I local? Am I Howley? Am I, you know, am I Hawaiian enough? You know, but yeah, I think it took wanting to know that the Hawaii would still be there for me and being in touch with that, even if my dad wasn't going to be here. And talking about family dynamic, one thing that your book showed me that I was never able to articulate before was how much influence Western culture and the tourism industry had on our family dynamic and identity. In your book, you write, Growing up in Makakilo in the 80s and 90s, all I knew was the town I lived in was quiet and boring. I hardly noticed the beauty of the mountains I saw from my living room every day. We were taught to see our homeland the way tourists did, always sunny and uncomplicated and a playground for others. And and then when I look back at my family growing up, I feel like I experienced a lot of the distance that you describe. You describe a, a distance between you and your parents and the distance between your parents. How did you come to that awareness? Yeah, it's 
it's interesting. Like we never talked about the my mom was Howley from Louisiana. I mean, we did. We joked about it, you know, and like that my dad was local and he was Portuguese Hawaiian. And like we knew those things, but we never talked about how they sort of intersected and clashed mm -hmm. and what that meant for me. And I think that that's really important. I wrote this essay a couple of years ago about being ethnically ambiguous, especially on the mainland. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, what are you? Right. Machado sounds Latina even. And I got a lot of responses from parents who were like, I married so-and-so outside of my race and like our kids are mixed and like, what should we be talking about? And I'm like, oh. just talk about it, yeah. right? Like ask them. And even in some place like Hawaii where everyone's mixed, right? Mm -hmm. It's important not to just gloss over that, right? I don't know things have probably changed. We live in a different time now. But when I was growing up, it was very much like it's the melting pot. Like we're all fine and hunky dory. And in the plantation days, like everybody shared food and that's how we all got along. And that's how we ended up with pigeon. Hooray. <laughs> you know, and like but it was like uh, everyone was getting paid garbage and right. like plantation times were not fun. And they were actually pitting these ethnicities against each other. And it wasn't only until they rallied against the white plantation owners was their solidarity. And I think like knowing that history and making sure that everyone's always aware of that history, I think that that's really important. And again, I think some of that's changed. I think it's a requirement in schools now to like teach, you know, Hawaiian studies. But I, for me, like my Hawaiian studies class in high school was super basic and didn't get in any of that kind of stuff. It was still sort of that very it's all good now. Who cares? Like, you know, right. Good thing somebody came and discovered us, you know, <laughs> and it's like, e. <laughs> uh, and, and talking about Hawaiian history, one thing about your book that I think is a very fresh approach to this kind of storytelling is how you weave in history about Hawaii to give readers a deeper understanding of your perspective of a particular event or moment in your life. How did that come about? Yeah, that took time. I, th You know, the book started... When my mom died, obviously, it was very, it affected me a lot, right? It was hard for me. And so I, when I started the book, it was a, a lot of our, about our relationship and loneliness, right? And like this loneliness I felt, or that I always felt between us and was unsure of, right? And as a writer, you want to kind of like excavate and get to the point. And, and as a journalist, I really, you know, it's like kind of killed me not to understand her. How do I? How do I get her? You know, right? And so it started off that way. But as time went on and I shelved the book and I picked it back up, I was like way more interested in like this general feeling of loneliness and how, why that was, right? And some of that, you know, as I realized, like you said, like, you know, we lived in this very, the, the 80s was like, you know, you wanted to live in this, you know, the idea was like you were a middle class family living in this house in Makakilo and you had like nice rattan furniture <laughs> and right. And your kid went to private school. But like, you know, why are there private school? You know what I mean? Like they're just like we lost all the history of like, like why these yeah. were like the these are the goals. Right. Like, why do we have these westernized goals? Like, why are we you know, why is why is this important? And so I started to question that. And I think because I was always like this sort of skeptical person right like I was always like what are we really happy you know <laughs> right you know that so that was always there and so I started to poke at those things and I wanted to learn more about my history I wanted to learn correctly right I didn't want to read the textbook from somebody you know somebody who's not local somebody who's not Hawaiian wrote you know 45 years ago I wanted to go to the you know the Kanaka scholars and, and the local people who and that have been writing these histories down and so that became very important to me and I could see that, you know, some of this, you know, my own struggles of not feeling Hawaiian enough was like by design, right? Like that's colonialism at work, mm -hmm. like making sure that, you know, if you're not 50% Hawaiian, then you're not Hawaiian, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. right? And um, and you realize like, oh, wait, that goes back to like seeded lands and like, you know, weird, you know. And, you're, and so once you dig into the history more, my own feelings started to make sense, you know? Well, thanks so much, Jessica. Your book, Local, is out now, right? Yes. All right. And thanks so much for hanging out with me. I really enjoyed talking to Thank you. Thank you. Me too. This was a lovely conversation. That was author Jessica Machado talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. This interview originally aired on January 23rd. Machado's memoir, Local, is available on Amazon. Did you know that Hawaii is the only U.S. state where cacao can be farmed? In fact, 
Hakalau on the Hamakua coast has been called the Napa Valley for chocolate due to the number of cacao farms and chocolate makers. The Conversations Lillian Song caught up with science writer Raven Hanna, whose recently published guide, One Cacao Tree, is aimed at hobbyists who would like to make chocolate from homegrown cacao pods or bought at the farmer's market. Cacao is a tropical plant, and it only grows between the two tropic lines. So we are kind of considered the North Pole of cacao here because, you know, we're, we're just kind of right on the line. And recently, the master gardeners at UH Hilo were able to take control over the cacao tree orchard there. Most of the cacao trees are seedling trees. But there have been experiments through the University of Hawaii to grow actual varietal trees. And these are clones. So these are trees that somebody at some point in time, at some place in the world decided, this is a really amazing fruit. I want to reproduce this fruit exactly. And so they take a branch and they graft it onto another tree. So in Hilo, we have a orchard full of these grafted trees that come from all over the world. It's really cool to like find out their histories from Ecuador or the Philippines or Chile, or we have a couple from Ethiopia. And just to kind of think about the history of people and this plant, it just sort of boggles your mind. And I started making chocolate from those trees and bringing it in to my fellow volunteers. And they absolutely loved it. And they wanted to know how they could do it themselves. So I started sending people home with pods and some directions. And they came back with, you know, wonderful nibs and chocolate. And I thought, gosh, there really should be a resource out there, a book to teach people how to make chocolate at home. And so I decided that I would go ahead and write one. Well, your energy, your experience really comes through the page, each chapter with the pictures, just the explanations. As a person who loves process, you have a book that is really geared for people like me, I think, because I appreciate seeing those pictures of fermenty, sticky cacao pods. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to take on a new task like that. You want to see what you're getting yourself into. And When you're in the middle of it, you want to see what it's supposed to look like so you know you're doing it right. My goal was to have beautiful photos that also conveyed information because it is hard to describe directions just by words. You can thumb through the book and enjoy learning about the process of cacao, but if you actually want to get into it, the photos will really help you along to see if what you're doing matches up to what I have done and helps you know what the product is you want to reach and how to perform each step. Chocolate is a fermented product. It is through the fermentation that you develop the wonderful chocolatey flavors that we all love. It is true that it's hard to get a good ferment with just a few pods and That actually is easily solved by adding additional heat to the process. And there's a number of ways to do that. What I've detailed in the book is a very simple way, just using a cooler and some mason jars. And once you have the fermentation down, then the rest is sort of straightforward. Easy enough. I can just go to my local longs, pick up a cooler, some mason jars. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Patience. How much patience do I need for this process? A little bit of patience definitely helps. When you crack the the pods and you extract the fresh fruit, which is delicious, by the way, everybody in Hawaii should try the fresh cacao fruit. There's no excuse. You can pick one up at the farmer's market. And then from cracking the pods, getting the fruit and fermenting it, that is about I would say seven to 10 days of fermentation. And then beyond that, you dry the seeds for another seven days or so. Some people let the seeds sit for about a month, but you don't have to if you're super impatient. 
then you roast and winnow. You crack open the shell and you separate it from the nibs inside. What's cool about this is you can go on and use those winnowed shells as a tea, or you can actually infuse them in alcohol and make an elixir too. So it's not exactly a waste product. And then you can use the nibs or you can make chocolate. If you do decide to go the route of actually grinding your own chocolate for bars and confections, then it's usually in the grinder for about one to three days. And the grinder you're talking about is just like my coffee grinder? So you can use your coffee grinder or a really nice blender to process the cacao, but you're not going to get the silky, smooth chocolate from a chocolate bar. You're going to get like the Mexican chocolate that has a little bit of graininess to it, which is totally delicious. And some people prefer that. In order to get the very smooth chocolate that we're used to, you need to use a special machine called a melanger. And it's a stone on stone granite grinding machine. You can also use it for other purposes like making coconut butter or macnut butter. So it is definitely something to consider if you are interested in making really nice, smooth chocolate. One question that really comes to mind right now, too is fermented versus unfermented. What's the difference? Yeah, it's, this is so interesting. In the United States, we are most used to fermented cacao beans. That's where we get that nice chocolatey flavor. But in other countries, including countries that where the cacao tree grows natively, they use unfermented beans as well as fermented beans. Both are very healthy for you. They just have some chemical differences and the feeling you get from them is a little bit different. But if you don't want to ferment, if you don't like bacteria, if you don't want things to get messy, then simply washing and drying the beans, you can get an unfermented cacao product that you can use. And I talk about that in the book as well. Give our listeners an example of an unfermented product that we could do? Unfermented beans, you would treat very similarly to fermented beans. So after drying, you roast them and then grind them up and make drinks. And actually, a happy discovery was mixing poi with cacao makes a delicious and super healthy drink. You can have it hot or cold. Yeah, it's delicious. So that's certainly something to try or mix it with anything else you'd like, cow's milk or coconut milk, almond milk, and spices like allspice, cinnamon, clove, chili pepper. There's so many different ways to try chocolate drinks. Well, you've really opened my eyes. I did buy a cacao tree with these fantasies of, yeah, chocolate, but... It's not that like I can just wave a wand and all of a sudden my cacao pod will turn into chocolate. As I'm following your guide and just seeing how the steps are laid out very clearly, it sounds so doable, but it will take commitment and will also just take that dedication to make space because I'm sure my family would be not very happy if I were to take over the kitchen. <laughs> For your own chocolate making, where are you processing it? Yeah, I process it in the kitchen and sometimes I use, well, I'm often using the guest room. <laughs> Fair warning, it is a hobby that can take over your life for sure. But honestly, to just do a fermentation, you can use a cooler, dry them out on a bucket in the yard or on your balcony and roast them in the oven and make nibs is minimal space required. And if you're interested in chocolate, if you love figuring out where your food comes from and you love growing your own food, then it's certainly worth at least doing that part of the process. I just think that cacao has something for everybody and encourage people to explore. You might find that you just like to grow the tree on your balcony and it makes you happy to see it. And that's great. Or you might find that you like to, you know, 
buy other people's pods or buy other people's beans and then take it further along in the process. I have found so much delight in this plant, and I wish that for other people as well. That was HPR's Lillian Song and Chocolatier Raven Hanna, author of One Cacao Tree, A Guide to Backyard Cocoa, Tiny Fermentations, and Chocolate Making in the Tropics. That interview originally aired this past January. Her book is available through Lulu Press and its select bookstores in Hawaii and San Francisco. That does it for today's special showcase of Summer Reads. What are you reading this summer? Let us know. Call or talk back line. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. You can also email us back at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you missed any of the show or are looking for a past one, find them all on the conversation page with links to more information about guests and topics. Just click on the Talk tab to find the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org or sign up for the conversation podcast on Spotify or Apple. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. for more of The Conversation.